0: I'm
1: to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author and blogger over at Unpickled. There's a link in the show notes if you're interested to read about how I've been living alcohol-free since 2011. I tell my story there and I hold space for your stories here. Now, I'm happy to report that after Endless weeks of a persistent upper respiratory illness, I'm finally feeling better. If you listen back to the episodes from late December through till you know last week, you'll hear my voice go from uh, a baritone <laughs> uh, going up the register till I'm close to normal by today. Um, my heart really goes out to anyone who is uh, battling through cold and flu season right now and double love to those of you with little ones at home who are sick. I have to share with you, I was absolutely stir crazy from spending so much time indoors the last 10 days or so. And if you look at my Instagram, which is Jean McCarthy Writes, you'll see that I made a beautiful snow labyrinth in the mountains just after Christmas. And that was on a good day. That was sort of between viruses for me. And then there's really barely any posts since then because I caught this crazy cough. And I'm telling you, it was absolutely off the charts. I was sleeping in the basement because my poor husband husband could not get any sleep. And I wasn't just coughing like a regular cough. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if you've ever been staying in a hotel and there's someone in the next room with one of those really bad coughs, and you're wondering whether you should call the front desk or an ambulance or the undertaker or what the heck's going on next door, that's the kind of cough that I had. And uh, I actually eventually sent my husband away for a few days because I didn't even want him to be around. And I'm sure he didn't want to be around either. And actually last episode, I actually had my microphone on mute multiple times throughout the episode because I could not stop coughing. So anyway, on Friday, I thought I was ready to return to humanity. I had a gift card burning a hole in my wallet for the bookstore that I got for Christmas. And I was so excited. I took my laptop. I'm working on a new book, which I'm really excited to tell you guys about in the future. I was like, you know what? I'm ready to get out of this house. I put on some boots, some mascara, got my laptop, went to go get a nice flat white and sit in the bookstore and just, you know, have a lovely day amongst the other humans. And I I got up to the till, I ordered my coffee and I started coughing. And the poor barista barista was looking at me like, "Oh gosh, don't cough that in my direction." I turn around, start coughing into my coat. I grab napkins, start coughing in the napkins. The people around me were giving me that death stare of like, "Get out of here with your germs and your cough, lady." And So anyway, I I hastily, like, grabbed a lid for my coffee and and just ran back to my car, utterly humiliated. And somehow, in the matter of a few seconds, I went from feeling, like, super cute and all excited to be out on a date with myself for the morning to um, my mascara was running down my face, and I just was an utter wreck and I sat in my car on the verge of tears feeling so sorry for myself so I'm so excited that now it's Monday and I'm feeling better and I'm out of the woods anyway look after yourselves everyone it can be really tough on us emotionally to be sick it's tough on everyone physically and emotionally but I think for those of us in recovery you know hungry angry lonely and tired well let me tell you after uh, this long illness I was definitely three out of the four if not more Um, we we really have to look after ourselves. A huge thank you to everyone who reached out to me over the last few weeks with your lovely messages. You were an absolute ray of sunshine into what was for me a kind of a difficult week and I really appreciated the cheering up that you did. Okay, so onward to today's show and today's guest. I am really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, This is something we haven't talked about a whole lot on this show and that is the effects of addiction and recovery that they can have on your finances. So my guest today is a woman who has lived the journey from addiction to recovery, and she never expected that her finances would go from bad to worse when she got sober, especially as a professional in the financial industry herself. So now, with over five years of sobriety, Linda Parmar helps others navigate similar circumstances, and she joins us today to share her story. Linda Parmar, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hello, Jean. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're here. We've known each other online for a long time, and we did meet in person uh, at a She Recovers event, and I'm really excited to connect with you and have you share your story today.
2: Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
1: Well, I'll have you jump right in. Tell us about yourself and tell us how your experiences brought you to where you're at today. Well, my name is Linda
2: Parmar. Yeah, my story. I I sat down, um, you had asked me to sit down and write out my story and I've told my story a few times and there was actually some things that I had completely forgotten about. Again, like every time you start to unearth your story, it's crazy what comes out of it. So yeah, it's, it's a crazy thing. So yes, I am in recovery from alcohol and drugs and also in recovery with my finances as well. My drinking career, (laughs) my drinking career, yes, I said that, um, started when I was 16. I I, I think that I was kind of a late bloomer when it comes to, like, people starting to drink and doing drugs in school and stuff. And I just always, you know, kind of hung back until I was 16. And honestly, it just started... Fast and furious right away, you know, me and my girlfriend were having a sleepover at her house, you know, 16 in high school, and it was, you know, let's steal the vodka out of the mother's cupboard, and from there it was, I was blackout drunk from the very beginning, and kind of in relation to the money part of it as well, I started Spending young. I had my first job at 11 years old working at the local arena. I always had my own money. I worked in a restaurant when I was in high school. I always had tip money, all that stuff and money I spent very, very quickly, very easily. It was just one of those things. So yes, I I partied hard in school. I was, I didn't care about school. I was just constantly um, socializing Uh, Graduated high school and moved out with three of my girlfriends from high school, got a very hefty student loan, and completely spent all of that money on alcohol, drugs, and clothes. There was nothing about school other than the tuition that I think I spent that money on, and And we're talking like back in the day, they were giving you a lot of money for school. And I think that at the end of my drinking, like career in in school and my student loan and all of that, I think I was up to like 45,000 in student loan debt once I was done school. I was on academic probation at that point. Um, It just was one of those things that I just didn't care. I just absolutely didn't care. I had a fake ID before I was out of high school and was in the bars early, early, early. And unfortunately, I got into the rave scene when I was in, you know living on my own, so I would say it was probably I was in the rave scene, so which brought a lot of drugs and continued to drink alcohol during that time. And I, I partied pretty hard for a couple of years. So I was only like 21 years old, 22 years old, and my body completely gave out on me. Like, I remember, like, I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't do anything at all. And, you know, I just, I couldn't go to work anymore. So I couldn't pay rent. I couldn't do anything like that. And it was, it was horrible. So I ended up having to move home. When I was 22 years old and trying to pick myself back up again, and you think that would have stopped me, right? You think about that time. You know, I grew up with in a home with alcoholic parents who both, you know, got were in recovery when I was an adult, and you think I would have seen some signs and all that good stuff, but I did not. I, you know, I got home, my parents were looking after me at the time, really building up my immune system, again, and taking care of me. And I started working a few jobs back home in my hometown here on Vancouver Island, and then decided to travel. So I moved to Australia, I have family that live there. And I just absolutely partied like crazy. And this was one of the things that I had forgotten about was I actually forgot that when I was in Australia that's when the drinking started to really really pick up again and I was out with a bunch of coworkers. I lived in Sydney Australia and I was with a bunch of coworkers. and I actually like had like that date rape drug slipped into one of my drinks and had no idea what my address was of where I lived I was out with com- like not complete strangers because I was you know, with people from work, but nobody knew where I lived. You know, I I live in a huge city in Australia. I'm not a local at whatsoever. And I think about that moment in my life and what could have actually happened. And I arrived home safe and sound. Somebody was able to find something in my purse that had um, my aunt's address on it, thank goodness. But it just continued and continued. It was just it was horrible. And while I was there, that's really when the credit card debt started to really pick up as well. Because when I just before I left Canada, I remember American Express gave me a credit card. And when I got to Australia, they kept bumping up the limit and bumping up the limit. And my whole trip to Australia, New Zealand, I did the Cook Islands, and everything was care of American Express. <laughs> I was doing cash advances. I was partying my butt off and it just my my time in Australia and traveling is a blur it you know I was 20 so I would have been 23 years old at that time and just continued to party and came home from Australia pretty much kind of broken again because I was partying too hard And I met my husband for the first time. So I was 25 years old when I was home. Met my husband and quickly fell in love with a man that um, he was divorced. He had two kids at the time. They were four and six years old. And I, you know, took about a year or so for to meet the kids and all that good stuff. And I drank socially at that time. Alcohol was you know, in the background, but it wasn't huge and prevalent at that time, I all of a sudden felt this, you know, my life was starting to settle down, which was nice. Uh, The odd evening at home, we would be drinking, um, you know, wine, and my husband never drank when I came into his life. And, you know, within a couple years of our relationship, you know, being in a split family, and, you know I, my career was starting to really pick up um starting to work as a financial advisor in the at here in Canada and the stress of being a financial advisor everything that's when the drinking started to really pick up again and it was it started with just kind of a bottle of wine here and there to really you know convincing my husband, like I turned my husband kind of into my drinking partner at one point, because it was, I felt the shame of what I was doing. And if I was doing it with someone else, it felt a little less shameful. And thank goodness, you know, it was one of those things we were, I always came home, had my glass of wine when I was cooking dinner, that was always part of my thing. But, you know, thank goodness the kids were young. They were going to bed early. A lot of drinking didn't happen until they were in bed, thank goodness. Um, but it was it was really starting to pick up. That We had a lot of, unfortunately, legal issues um, with split custody and some things happening. And that stress of that and the money stress, I was completely starting to overspend at that time because, the stress of everything was just too much and overspending in regards to spending way too much money on alcohol, you know, I, and I could only drink the best wine, God forbid, if I, you know, I always joked around about, I would always drink like fancy wine and would be like kind of a wine snob for people who had like boxed wine or like cheap wine. I was kind of known as a wine snob and you know, that the money stress, I think made me drink even more. Like it was just, it was just so stressful and I can actually feel that stress in the middle of my shoulder blades when I talk about it. Uh, Cause it was just that, that memory was just so heavy, so, so heavy, but I just kept overspending and, you know, my work environment really, really was one of those things that, it it just really condoned drinking so much because we were working in high stress jobs. It was people constantly talked and and this is for anybody though, like, but I really found in the banking industry that um, the, the money, the dealing with people's money and just working in a bank in itself is quite stressful. So everybody talked about drinking. There was, you know, staff events that happened that got completely out of control. And I was like a manager at one point. And I was drinking with my staff and doing all of this crazy stuff. And I think back to that. And, you know, when I did finally say that I was sober to some people, it was just like, I remember some of my work co-workers being, oh my God, (laughs) because they could tell how much of a problem I was having. Um, So yeah, 2012 was when, so I'm 42. So I would have been about 35. So there was a good solid 10 years where it went from, you know, meeting my husband, you know, having a first couple of years of feeling really happy and drinking socially again to all of a sudden, you know, oh my goodness, I, I, I know I have a drinking problem. And I wrote myself a letter and it was like, you know, dear Linda, like if you if you think think again that you have a drinking problem you need to get help Uh, I just had written my heart out because I just really felt at my bottom but I was so scared I was so scared to quit drinking because you know god forbid that I couldn't go out with the girls and have wine nights or have my girls nights anymore or, you know, we were planning on going to a trip to Cuba with my kids, and I won a trip through work for my performance in my job, and we were being taken to the Dominican Republic. And God forbid that I couldn't be drinking during those trips. And I remember I put off getting sober for that, which I think of that now, and it's crazy to me. But yeah, I just, the month of March 2013 was when I. And just I was have I had a going away party from one of the branches I was working at. I, you know, had my birthday. I had a gr- I went to my best friend's house and we had planned this big Golden Globes party, a big girls d- drinking event essentially. And I remember my oldest daughter saw me drunk, and I remember I had to apologize to her the next day and how that felt and how that felt that I never wanted her to see me like that again. And the and I was just, I was off. I was so off. I knew what I had to do. I've seen alcoholism. I knew what that looked like. And I remember my husband coming home on March 17th, 2013, it was on St. Patrick's day. And my husband came home from work and I, you know, sat him down and I said, I'm an alcoholic and he was actually quite excited because he thought that because I was acting so strange and so many weird things were happening that I had cheated on him. But it was more because, like, I, it was me, like, you know, finally saying, like, oh, my, I, I'm an alcoholic. I have a drinking problem. He was like, oh, my goodness, thank God. Like, no, we can deal with this. I thought something, like, you know, crazier was happening. But he knew I had a problem. But <laughs> when I think back to that moment of me just, like, pouring my heart out he was so excited that that's what it was as opposed to to drink to um you know infidelity or anything like that so yeah he was super supportive um, he actually hasn't drank since that day as well which was crazy to me because it made me realize how much of a quote-unquote normie he was because he never struggled with it <laughs> but I clearly struggled with it and the nightmares that happened after I quit drinking, the drinking dreams, all of that stuff was just so hard. And that's really, again, kind of going back to the money part of it is when my overspending ramped up huge. It started to just, it got out of control. And we were already maxed out on everything. I was taking money out of RSPs. I was treating my house like my wallet, working at the bank, which I realized now was a super, super codependent relationship in regards to them constantly like refinancing my home. Um, But, you know, at the same time, like they were just so willing to do that. And I would just rack up a ton of debt and they would refinance it again. And we would play the same song and dance over and over again until there was just nothing left. And, Unfortunately I was at a at a turning point, you know, two years into my sobriety where I was just I had spent every dime available to me. And, you know, we had to sell our home. I thought we were gonna lose everything. Like you say, I was a financial advisor. I was in charge of so many people's money and I couldn't get it together myself. It just continued to be one of those things. But thank goodness I was in recovery. Thank God I was Learning tools to move forward because I just took accountability for it. And, you know, I was at a She Recovers Salt Spring trip sitting there talking to Dawn up in the barn house. I kept just saying like over and over again how much I hated my job. My job was so stressful. And she was like, "Well, you know, what do you want to do with in your life?" And I said, "I would love to help women in recovery." And then she says, "Well, what what specialty do you have that you could help people? Like you should be a money coach." And I was like, you're yeah, right. Like I'm such a financial disaster." And she just said, like and that, or one of the girls was sitting there, and she said, "Sometimes we need to teach what we need to learn." And I'll never forget that moment. And from there, I actually felt excited about what I could do. And par- and I, so I started looking into a money coach training and found my money coach training and just started it and did my own money coaching, which started my financial recovery, which has been the most beautiful thing I've ever done.
1: I find this really interesting. I'm curious about how that works for you. You know, when we talk about teach what you need to learn. You had to learn it first so that you could teach it and you had to live it first so that you could experience it. So can you talk a little
2: bit about that? So what I essentially went through at first with my training was through, I went through the Money Coaching Institute for my first part of my training. So what that looked like is I went through the exact same process that I was being trained to take clients through what that starts with is talking about your money story and really excavating what's happened to you with money, what that looks like. You go into like a forgiveness piece. You go into what behaviors you feel like you have gotten from your family lineage with money, what you feel like behaviors with money that I have gotten for myself. And then from there, working on a plan on how to change those behaviors and very, very specifically behavior-based because when it comes to money, the behavior part of it is such a huge – it's a huge – like I could – sit there and make a budget for someone but like if if no one really kind of gets a handle on that impulsive spending what I really needed to look at was like why do I impulsively spend what does that look like where did that come from what's the story surrounding that and really working through that and understanding it and from there that's where
1: the healing starts and then you get into the numbers and what did you discover about yourself when you went through that process
2: What I discovered is that I learned a lot from my mom. I learned a lot growing up at home. And this is what happens a lot too, is that my dad was the saver and he was the worker and my mom constantly overspent. And then it turned into like huge arguments amongst my parents. Money has such a huge negative energy to me. I never felt safe around money. Money equaled trauma. To me, money equaled, you know, that fight, flight, or freeze response. I would just freeze and just not, you know, want to deal with anything. It scared the crap out of me. I was so scared of money. So it was almost like this I tried to control it by
1: completely abusing it. Okay, there's a disconnect there for me, so I'm not getting it. (laughs) Okay,
0: yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and you have to well, I explain think, this to me more. How does that yeah. work? Because I think for yeah. most of us controlling it means holding on to it tighter. Were you in complete denial that spending that purchasing things had connected to money or what, what was the disconnect? Abso- there?
2: Absolutely. Ab- there was a huge disconnect there. I had absolutely no conscious connection with what I was doing whatsoever. And I had a moment, I think that I was about a year and a half sober and I went into winners and I had had a horrible day at work. I had had a really stressful day. I completely blacked out spending in winners, completely didn't know what I bought. And absolutely, I had such a disconnect that I was completely taking advantage, which I thought was like taking control if that makes any sense whatsoever. It, it's so do, a, it was a control piece for me, which I thought and I was always getting away with it because I kept refinancing my house.
1: <laughs> was it um an instant gratification thing? Like, do you see it as an addiction transfer and that you were absolutely um, I, I, you know, different guests have talked about eating disorders, if our lives mm-hmm. are that big Venn diagram of overlapping circles. I think addiction has a lot of things that overlap, and so you know, Amy Jessner wrote a book about quitting drugs and alcohol and and going mm-hmm. hog wild with a sex addiction. That was a simple transfer yeah. of her addiction or um, yeah. eating disorders. Or you know, we call it whack a mole sometimes. You know, it's like one thing you get <laughs> one thing under control and something else pops up. So is this yeah. a similar thing? And do you see it as a similar brain process? Is it a sort of pleasure reward circuitry? think? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So we actually, cause you actually get so instant gratification when you ask if that's an, it was a thing for me. Absolutely. I wanted that instant I wanted that instant fix and I wanted something to make me feel better. I constantly wanted to make myself feel better and I thought that buying stuff did that for me. And you actually, like when we talk about the brain, you actually get a hit of dopamine um, when you get that instant gratification or that re- like, quote-unquote retail therapy. You absolutely get that hit of dopamine.
1: So now have you learned healthier ways to get that dopamine or have you healed the need underlying it or both? I think that I have I would like to say that I've
2: healed that need but I would be lying if I said that it was completely healed just like my addiction to alcohol is that, you know, I'm five years, six years soon. And I had a time this over this holiday season where I actually crazed a drink. And that comes absolutely, like I did this huge pitch, um, now doing just my coaching full-time, I did this huge pitch to this treatment center. And I walked out of that meeting, I was like, oh my goodness, that was amazing. And I was on this high. And the first thing I thought about was, what am I going to go buy myself that was the first thing I thought of and I thought whoa like where did that come from and then I also struggle with eating and then so it was like oh well what can I go and eat and it was like my god Linda how about you just go home (laughs) Just go home (laughs) like like, stop the madness it's just so I want to say that I'm completely healed from it, but it's that impulse and that trying to reach outside myself for
1: sure comes every
2: once in a while.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So now that you're yeah. talking regularly with other people that mm-hmm. are reaching out for financial healing in addition to their recovery, I'm wondering if you can talk about If people haven't experienced financial burdens because of the way that they acted out in addiction, they may have experienced it because of seeking treatment. Um, Treatment can be very, very expensive and, um, and can leave people with financial burdens. I think everyone who's on the other side of it says it's absolutely worth it the same way that any other treatment for disease is necessary and worth it. But can you talk about that a little bit? And what are some of the other things that we might not have thought about that are contributing to people's financial burdens? Are you encountering people that are having to deal with the aftermath of paying for treatment? Oh, yeah. Or yeah, yeah, or planning sure. ahead? In both in both regards?
2: Oh, treatment. Um, So I actually have started going into treatment centers and doing financial recovery workshops. And for one of those reasons, and I I go into private treatment centers where people are actually like, you know, some of them are provincially paid or from the government or whatever. And these are private ones. And the one that I I do here on the island, I think it's just to walk in the door, you're looking at $30,000. The shame around, and this is, this is what keeps people very, very stuck when it comes to money. And this was also my thing. um, After what I realized what I was doing, because before, again, there was a disconnect with what was happening with money. But once I started to really realize, so people who are in a financial situation, because they've gone to treatment, there needs to be an acceptance about, you know, why they're there, what they're going to get out of it that forgiveness piece and that acceptance piece is so huge in that process because to let go of that shame and that guilt of why you're there, because again, that's not going to be very good for your recovery. And then how are you going to handle that when you're going to get out, right? Like there's going to be, you know, a debt repayment plan of some sort. Some people borrow money from family. Like, what does that look like? And then you have all of this, you know, people borrowing money from family is a whole other thing because then that, that burden of oh my god my family had to bail me out again and just there's all these stories attached to money and I think that's always the main piece of that is really looking within and saying like what's this story like what why am I feeling this way I think that's the biggest work when it comes to money and letting go of that attachment when you're doing something like
1: treatment to look after yourself right You mentioned shame and imposter syndrome for yourself as a person who worked in the financial industry and struggled with finances. And yet, you know, it's interesting because you worked in the money lending industry. (laughs) I know. Um, It makes sense to me that that was especially accessible to you. And as you said, almost kind of an enabling relationship that you had with your employer. But let's talk a little bit about shame and imposter syndrome, because guests on this show have included therapists. Teachers, doctors, politicians, people in law enforcement, and no matter what walk of life they're in, everyone says they feel shame because they feel like their particular profession should be exempt from addiction right. or should know better or, um, you know, right. people found out what would they think. I think that there's, there's so many people that can relate to that. Tell me, you know, how, what you learned about that, about yourself and how you've reconciled that within yourself.
2: That was a hard one for me because I, again, that shame piece, really, I held on to that for a while and then it started to become, okay, well, and and this came up in my money coaching that I did was, okay, so I blamed the bank or I would blame certain things for what happened to me and, you know, finally coming to to the realization that I created my truth. And so mm. that acceptance piece around that was so huge. Like, was it really the bank's fault? Like, no, like I was the one doing it, right? So, or like, was it, you know, the court's fault or, you know, like a, the legal fees and all that stuff that we built up through the years. And And no, like that all was my choice. That was my choice. So when I think about that, now I feel acceptance around it and again like I felt like I had such detached feelings about money um, and what was really happening because I felt like I was getting away with it all the time like there was always that band-aid that was being put on it I actually like didn't really think much of it when I was really in my role because I thought I was just doing what I for other people of what I was doing for myself. And that's a huge reason why I got into the money coaching piece as well, is because I could see people had the exact same patterns and behaviors that I did. And I couldn't help them in a banking setting anymore. Like that wasn't where my capacity was and what was expected of me in my job. But I was constantly refinancing people's homes and people are horrified about money and in my office crying constantly. I'm one of those people that makes people feel comfortable very easily. And so when we got to the point of what they really needed, the, the tears that the people would shed because of the shame and the anger and the resentments. And there's so many feelings attached to money. So I think back to what I, what I did in the banking industry, and there's a lot of shame and in, in kind of how I, you know, the policies and procedures that led me to, you know, get people into a worse financial situation, I believe. And I think that's what's hard about the banking industry in general now is that, That's the way it is. Like, no wonder so many people are in so much debt. The bank's just Mm -hmm. giving away lines of credit, credit cards, this, that. And it's just like, oh, how much do you want? Oh, here you go. And it's like, oh, my God. Oh, good. I got my totals. I got all my goals for the week because, like, I sold this many credit cards and this many lines of credit. (laughs) I can
1: understand that, though, because... You know their their job is not to be anyone's therapist or anyone's mental health professional. Exactly. Or I um, spent my career in the home building industry, and people come in and they want what they want. And you see a young couple that's overextending themselves, or maybe buying something that, you know, you want to say, hey, how about we start in this starter home over here, take like some pressure off your marriage? And no, they want that big house, and it's not my business. It's mm-hmm. my okay. business is to provide them what they want. And so, and yet wow, how great it would be if there was some sort of counseling service because as home builders or as bankers or as many other things, it would be great if someone was there to help that person make a, a their best decision and give them like some counseling at the same time. And I guess that's the, exactly. that's the overlap that you're hoping to reconcile now, right? With yeah. the work that you're yeah. doing now that's and, exactly. and seeing the different that's, exactly right. that's that's really lovely. Like I think that's really Honorable and and lovely that you took the healing that you know that you needed within yourself and mm-hmm. fought the mm-hmm. shame attached to it and and have turned it into a way to help others I think it's amazing I want to come back yeah. to something else you talked about and that was that you were you were scared to quit that you identified alcohol with your friendships with your relationships and it was sort of part of who you are and what you did and one thing you mentioned was that you were a wine snob and that you you know part of your identity was wrapped up around having high uh, um, high expectations or you know good taste and that kind of thing and what I wrote down as you said that was was your addiction playing a little trick on you what was going on there? oh
2: god yeah (laughs) oh my god yeah can you talk about that and I think it was a way for me to make an excuse for myself constantly, so you know these days you hear a lot in the press about like quote unquote like mummy wine culture, that sort of thing. Um I absolutely you know I live on Vancouver Island where we have wine tours um in b c there's um the interior where there's like wine tours, and I got so caught up in that whole life it felt like a lifestyle it made me feel important it made me feel like I would constantly set up wine tours for my friends and my colleagues at work and I was known as the wine gal it was
1: part of my identity how did you shed that and how did you sort of harness how you saw yourself oh that was a
2: lot of shedding that was a lot it, you know what, I'm going to be honest in that it took me with my close friends and my and not my immediate family, um, but colleagues and stuff, it took me some of them anyways, a lot of convincing to them that I was an alcoholic. Because mm-hmm. I think that they saw I did a lot of closet drinking, like I said, kind of like after the kids went to bed and I got out of control, like, uh, like at work events every once in a while, but I would drink on the wine tours, but it was more like when I got home that it was like a little dirty secret of mine. So -hmm. I don't think a lot of people saw it. You know, when I told some people, they were like, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You quit drinking because again, it was part of my identity and Mm -hmm. It's like no, I I actually like have a problem here. Like I need to quit drinking. Like near the end there, like I think I was probably drinking a couple bottles of wine a night.
1: The
0: story yeah. that you
1: tell there is very much my story too. Is that um, I mm-hmm. I hit it very well, but you can only do that for so long. Um, exactly wherever we're at in our in our. Functional phase of alcoholism—it's temporary. I've really, this has really been on my mind lately. Um, someone in one of my online groups posted today, like, "Can someone be a functional alcoholic?" Well, sure, we yeah. all were until we weren't, right? Or unless we to Such a death. good point. But it's not—it's yeah. not a permanent condition. It's—it always escalates because um, our tolerance increases, and there's dopamine down regulation and and so it always escalates mm-hmm. until either consequence or some other wake-up call brings an end to it. We think we're doing okay, you know? We think we're doing okay, but it's it's temporary. That's where we're at. I want to also bring this back around to some of the relationships in your life. So you talked about turning your uh, husband into your drinking buddy. So when you quit drinking, what happened to your relationship and, and um, what does that look like now and how did that shift things between you? He he is amazing. My husband's amazing.
2: He was so supportive. I think that like my, my parents being recover, in recovery, like, and I, I think he always in the back of his head, he, I think he knew that it wasn't healthy, but you know, he was also experiencing the stress. So when it comes to us quitting, it was so clear to me that it was me that had the problem because it was so hard for me to quit. And he was like, Oh yeah, no, I'm good.
0: <laughs> and I did hated he quit him with for you, it. Linda?
1: Did he
2: quit he did, right along
0: yeah.
1: with you? Wow. He did. Yeah. Yeah. He but hasn't being had a, normie, a drink. He since. could take it or leave it. Yeah. I know.
2: Isn't that, don't you hate that? <laughs> well,
1: I love that I was he did so that for
2: jealous. you. I was so <laughs> jealous. Um, our relationship you know our relationship has grown in our in my recovery like i am a completely different person i would say that he's a completely different person and not because he works a program of recovery but because i do and he watches me and he sees like the change that's happened in me and You know, as you grow as a couple, like, or as one person grows, you grow as a couple, right? So, yeah, I would say that we're stronger than ever. We'll be married for uh, 13 years this year. We've been
1: together for 17 years. Um, How old were you when your parents got into recovery? And did they do that together?
2: I think that I was probably 14 when my mom got sober and 17 when my dad got sober, so my mom was sober for a few years before my dad got sober. You know, I, I mirrored my dad a lot in my recovery. I don't have any, like, really super crazy story of, like, something horrible happening to me. I was quite jovial, quite happy. I was just drinking to numb out stress and anxiety most of the time. There was no question about that.
1: Their recovery couldn't protect you from experiencing addiction mm-hmm. and Mm an alcohol use disorder yourself, but how do you Mm -hmm. think that their recovery influenced your choice to embrace recovery?
2: I think that I always knew I was an alcoholic. I will say that for sure. I remember going to my dad's cakes and me, me thinking, you know, being in complete denial, but knowing deep down in my gut that I had a problem as well. Because, like, when my dad got sober was when I was just starting my drinking. And I remember being blackout drunk from the beginning. I remember my mom asking me those questions. And if, like, I was ever experiencing that, to let them know. And I never told my parents. So, when it, I finally made the choice to get sober, I knew. I knew what was safe, like, so I was comfortable with AA at the time, Um, so I went straight to the rooms and found a beautiful women's meeting, uh, worked the steps right away, and I knew that because of my parents' recovery.
1: Mm. And when you say going to your dad's cakes, you mean going to his anniversary meeting? So you'd been to an open, meeting before as a family member supporting a loved one who was celebrating a milestone is that what she meant by that exactly that's exactly right Yes. thank you yeah did that make it less scary for you then to it sounds like you when you knew you knew what to do Yes, I, I knew
2: exactly what to do, yeah, and I, I, you know, and you, and you've, I've heard it on this sh- podcast a few times where people, like, take, like, am I an alcoholic test over and over and over
0: again, <laughs> and
2: I was one of those people, like, taking the test over and over again, like, oh, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, maybe I have.
0: <laughs> maybe oh, God, I don't have too. a drinking
2: problem. <laughs> and
1: then I'd be like, well, you know, and- Tuesday, I only had two glasses of wine, so let's do it as if it was Tuesday. Okay, now let's try it again. over <laughs> What if my glasses were a little bit bigger? Let's try it this way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so
2: I I felt safe in AA at first. I had a bad experience with it going, up like, a couple of years ago, but I've I've since gone back into the rooms, and um, I feel safe there, you know. Yeah. And thank goodness for She Recovers and all the other places. But when I first got sober, I knew that that was safe because of – You know, I felt safe when I went to my dad's cakes and I remember feeling so proud of him. It was never Mm. anything I did with my mom, but I definitely I think because I was older, like my parents would invite me to his cakes and I would have been probably like, you know, 18, 19, 20, because I remember to going to probably about two or three cakes for him.
1: Okay, so the lesson in this for those of us that are in recovery and listening is share your recovery with your family and your loved ones, right? Oh, <laughs> Show them right? how it's done. Find that light and yeah. don't be afraid yeah. to share that with them. And and so were they were they pretty excited when when you told them or was there part of you? I have to admit, like there was a little part of me that um, I waited to tell my dad was sober for fifty plus years when he passed away Um, although he he'd gotten sober in the rooms but didn't stay he stayed sober but didn't stay in the program when I did finally tell him I was excited to tell him that I had quit drinking but that was also hesitant in some ways Um, there was a part of me that was a little bit rebellious about it what about you what did that feel like for you
2: I went to my parents right away. I think that the day after I told my husband, I told me and my husband went and told my parents. And I'll never forget sitting, feeling like I was possibly going to be judged. Um, And more because I held on to the shame that it took me so long. It took Mm. me so long you know like like you say like share with your family that you were in recovery and that was shared with me and I was still you know 35 years old when And I drank heavily for almost 20 years. I I held on to a lot of shame about that, but my parents were so supportive and so beautiful about it. My dad was so lovely and went and grabbed his AA books right away. And, you know, you got to read this one and this is the daily reflections and, you know, and I'll never forget (laughs) being so proud that I had my dad's AA book when I went to go do my first step study. And I was just, it was kind of cool.
1: So, Aww. yeah,
2: I, they were very proud of me. Yeah, it was kind of cool.
1: That's really sweet. Um, yeah, so, you we're can rounding up the highlighted. End of our, yeah. As we get yeah. to close to the end of our our hour, I want to ask, you know, just in a nutshell or in a few sentences, if someone is really struggling in sobriety or considering sobriety, but also really feeling burdened by their financial concerns and you know i i was saying i asked you if your addiction was playing a trick on you by telling you you were a wine snob and you were fancy (laughs) i also think that our addiction will leverage whatever it can to to keep us stuck when we're in active addiction and people that maybe feel like well i can't deal with my financial issues because the addiction issues are huger or i can't deal with my addiction issues because the financial stuff is huge where do you start And sort of what are some of the first steps that you recommend for people to start to take control and and feel more empowered? And just where do we start?
2: For sure. I think that what I would say to people when it comes to that overwhelming feeling, everybody's a bit different. But I've had a lot of clients who are still in their addiction because of money. So I have, there's that end of the spectrum. And then there's people who I believe it's so important for them to really focus on their recovery first. So it really depends on their story and what's really happening with them. So that's a lot where like the consultation piece comes in for me. But first and foremost, really take care of your recovery. And again, like when when I talk about recovery, we, we talk about that onion that, you know, you kind of peel back the layers sometimes. So that financial piece is usually part of that layer that you're going to start to peel back. And when you want to actually look at that layer, again, is everybody on when they want to start, that's a little bit different. But I, I would say my main thing that I love for people to do is, because I'm so focused on the emotions surrounding money is that connection to money. What are you feeling about money? Why do you feel like you feel like that with money? Start to journal about money. I have a Facebook group and one of the things I love to do is, Every Monday we talk about why we're grateful for money. You know, I have a money gratitude journal. Really start to look at your relationship with money. What does that look like? And kind of just be curious about that. There's a lot of free stuff online that I have, but just really starting to you know look at the numbers and tracking your money is so so important but sometimes you know in saying that people and looking at the money and those numbers is the hardest part for them so again everybody's journey is a little bit different but what I would say is start to be curious about your relationship start to manifest some gratitude around it Start to connect with yourself when you're spending money. Is this what I need? Is it something I want? If I want it, why do I? Are you like reaching outside of yourself to make yourself feel better? Just really connecting that way. Because the beautiful thing is that because we're in recovery, we start to get in touch with ourselves that way. And working on a spending plan. I call it a spending plan as opposed to a budget. Because I find budget to be a very restrictive word. So in financial recovery, I'm big on like choosing to spend your money on certain things and creating that consciousness, conscious relationship with money is huge. Don't be detached Mm -hmm. like I was, connect with it.
1: Is it ever hopeless? Is anyone ever beyond hope in your belief? Absolutely not.
2: I would have thought that if there was anyone that was beyond hope, it would have been me four years ago. And if I and that's what I think I love so much about what I do. And it just makes me so passionate is that if I can do it, you can do it.
1: Mm, I love that. Linda, where can people uh, learn more about you? Find your website, join your Facebook group? How can they how can they find your information? Sure. So my um,
2: it, my website is uh, lindaparmar.com, uh, P A R M A R, and uh, my Facebook group is called Your Money Your Recovery, and that is just on Facebook. If you search that Facebook group, um, just ask for an uh, uh, access into the group. Uh, it's it's a cool group. It's um it's mostly women in recovery and just cheering each other on with our money. And if we're having hard times, it's a nice place to be able to chat about it.
1: Linda, thank you for sharing your story today. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad you were here. Yes. Thank you very much, Jean. I
2: appreciate it as well.
1: And listeners, I will make sure I add Linda's website into the show notes so that you can click to it right from your podcast app. And so um, that's it for our time this week. As we close off today, I wish everyone good health, uh, physical health, mental health, emotional health, and financial health. So, all the best, everyone. Linda, thank you, and until next time, everyone, take good care.
0: I own it, I did that Not proud but that that me And when I face it I Take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be